from your truck and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. And today is the power hour. I've got the guys from Pittsburgh Power joining me. We'll take your calls and answer your questions about engines, maintenance, performance, horsepower, torque, fuel mileage, modifications, upgrades, emissions, troubleshooting, you name it. We'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask the question. We're going to get to those questions in just a little bit. Joining me today from Pittsburgh Power, we've got Bruce and Ethan and John. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having us, Kevin. As always, it's a pleasure. Great to have you, Hi, Ethan Kevin. and John. Yeah, there you here, are. Kevin. All right. Great to have you guys here. So uh, I don't have a ton of stuff today. John, I know you sent me a couple emails this morning. I've been following that story and meaning to talk to you about that. Uh, is that something we want to talk about today? Sure. Yeah, we could talk about that. And and but first, we want to talk about the variable geometry turbos that we spoke about the last was it last week or two weeks ago? You know, uh, it, I think the, both. Just one. that that's interesting, Bruce, because I I was telling the story over the weekend about um, how picky you are about dialing in turbos that when you travel across the country, you'll actually stop and change the turbo on your truck. And somebody called and he said, I don't know a lot about engines, but he said, isn't there a way that somebody could develop a turbo that would do both of those things? And I said, well, sort of, and and maybe even more than that. And I kind of talked a little bit about the variable geometry turbo and how you're programming that. Right. Um, You know, we talked about uh, taking the owner-operators that are in our driver's lounge and taking them back into the shop and showing them how to take a variable geometry turbo, taking the turbine housing off and cleaning the carbon. But we've discovered something else in the last couple weeks. There's a plate in there that the fanes for the variable geometry turbo have to fit into, and that has to slide. And I'm going to turn this over to John because he's spearheading this project. John? Yeah, they're they're fussy little things, the turbos, and uh, so many of our customers have just gone into shops and had to have them changed, and you just change them, and we've changed our fair share of them as well, too, uh, you know, without, you know, the, the troubleshooting trees has changed the turbo, and we do, and they're quite expensive. So we started digging into them, and a little online research, and also, you know, the manual from Cummins, and Cummins really just rec- wants to sell you turbos. They They obviously make a lot of money on them. Uh, it's 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 a profitable little 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 thing for them. They they get quite a bit of bit of money for their VG turbos. Um, now they you know they 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 they're kind of complicated. And there's one piece inside the Cummins that's a ring that the veins mate with uh, in the exhaust housing. It has to be free, not full of carbon, and has to float and has to not put any drag on the veins for them to work freely. So, you know, we've read about this and we've changed turbos ourselves and we're we're getting into rebuilding them now. We've sourced all the parts we need to rebuild them, so we're going to keep some of our own rebuilds on the shelf uh, for these things and learning more and more about them. Uh, I think I briefly mentioned our testing program we've got going on on the engine dyno right now. We're doing some missions testing. 
and working through uh, some problems with the engine that we bought for testing, and we had this odd surge at a certain RPM. The turbo seemed to not be able to find its spot where it wanted to be, and it uh, didn't, uh, you know, going down the road, you may or may not notice it. You might have driven right through it, but uh, putting the constant load on the turbo, we, we were struggling with this problem, and since we're doing pretty sensitive emissions testing, we couldn't deal with uh, the potential for a D-rate or the engine turning the EGR off or the EGR flow not consistent since we're looking at NOx on the, on the emissions testing. And as it turns out, that ring ended up being the problem. Uh, we It wasn't floating properly. The vanes weren't free to move as they wanted to inside of there, and it was creating a surge, and we ended up changing that turbo. We didn't have the things we needed to rebuild that one, so we uh, we, we got one from Cummins. But it, it solved the problem. So we're we're tackling this now. We're going to get into rebuilding these things, and we're going to do an exchange program. We'll we'll keep a couple of our own rebuilds on the shelves, and you know just more and more to learn about the the more modern engines. Interesting. You know, it's um, when you start doing something like that, tearing them apart, cleaning them up. It's amazing how you you know you continue to learn more and more about these things, which is exactly what we need. So it's good to see. But you know, most people would look at that and say, "Oh, that's not going to bother anything." And <laughs> I, I was one of them. I'm like, "How could that be a problem? Like, you know, what's that going to do?" And turns out it is. <laughs> so, you know, my own skepticism and my own, uh, you know, it comes back, and you have to keep an open mind at all times and say, "Ah, oh, how about that?" Uh, so that that really is an issue, and that's what it does. And we got to see it right in front of our eyes, you know, through a window in the dino room. So it was it was interesting. Yeah, great stuff. What. Uh... I, I haven't had – I know you mentioned this, John, in the past about this axle, and uh, I, I've been collecting all the headlines because it's been in the news lately, but I haven't had time to really dig into this. What uh, is this on the market yet? It is on the market. You could buy one, yeah, and they're, they're making them about 15 miles from where we are. Uh, it's the exact same you know idea that I'd been talking about. We floated it around a year and a half ago or so uh, trying to do it ourselves, and – I uh, never really had the backing. We, we we weren't able to land any sort of grants or anything. Obviously, that's that's tough to do, uh, and we uh, weren't able to do it. But it's the same concept that I've been talking about. Uh, it's a local company here in Pittsburgh. Uh, they just took over a big 50,000 square foot facility that was an old, I believe, aluminum plant or aluminum fabrication shop. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what they used to do there, but it's a big, beautiful building. It happens to be in probably my favorite neighborhood of Pittsburgh. So that's interesting. But, yeah, so they, they I believe, are up and running, ready to sell. If you look at their website, it was just updated today. It was pretty pretty tired for a while. Yesterday or today, it looked like it uh, completely changed. They took their emphasis from powering trailer subframes uh, uh, to the second axle on the truck, uh, same process I wanted to. The difference is they've got a really cool, high-tech, totally automated system. So the thing's autonomous, even though it's on your truck. I believe at the time we talked to them, the only in, only interface, the only thing they do is put a micro switch on one of your uh, uh, slack adjusters so it knows when you're applying the brakes. And, you know, obviously then it reverses the field wires on the motor and turns it into a generator so it can generate some electricity and help the truck slow down. So it's got regenerative braking, a battery pack. And, you know, so anytime you're going downhill or out of the throttle or touching the brake, the thing is uh, regenerating and keeping the batteries up. And it, cleverly, it uses that same battery pack as an APU, uh, which is which is also brilliant. So the truck will never have to idle. Uh, and it's fully autonomous. So it, it also uses GPS and all sorts of uh, GPS, I believe, 
to to know when it's going up and down the hill. So it uses data from, you know, like probably Google Maps to, to tell it what it's doing and where it's going, much like the Detroit transmission to tell it when to assist and when to charge. And claims I'd heard were 13, 14 miles per gallon. Wow. So I, I... – and, and we know I, – I don't want to mention who their backing is, but it's huge. So they've okay. got plenty, <laughs> plenty of money behind them yeah. to, to, to bring this to market in a big way. So I think it's brilliant for one thing. And secondly, we're all going to have to sharpen our pencils. If you guys are going to have to compete, you know, the, if our, our owner-operator is going to have to compete with fleets that are getting 13, 14, 15 miles per gallon, there's, you know, you, you keep mentioning disruption, and the disruption, I believe, is happening even faster than you think. It's, I think it's here. Boy, it's hard to keep up with. You know, the just the headlines disrupt you know, me all day long because I, this stuff just keeps coming across. So, like I said, I've been watching these headlines. I haven't even had time to read the articles yet. And I didn't realize this. I thought this was only a trailer application right now. You're saying it's already ready for a tractor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've shifted gears completely on that. It was interesting. I'd gone and talked to them, actually. Ethan and I went on one trip, and Leroy and I went on another trip. We went over to their shop, their old shop, on a Saturday, and so what they were playing around with. And it, they were really focused on the trailer then. And at one point, I, I really wanted to do the truck in, so I, I'd approached them about buying their control systems to, to do a second axle on a truck, and I explained to them that I wanted to uh, – because these people don't know trucks. They're, they're you know, really – they do now, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure they've got yeah. quite an education. They've probably hired people who know trucks. So, But at the time, you know, they're engineers and, and really, really smart guys and, you know, total total geeks that were into this. And they thought it was just so simple to do the trailer axle, and that was their focus. So we went and talked to them. And at the time, they didn't feel that their uh, investors would be okay with that. You know, they didn't want to, you know, they, hey, we need to stay focused on our deal. We need to uh, not bother with that. We're not interested in building control systems for yeah. for other companies that might want to do something similar. So, and I, and I got that. I understood completely. And, you know, so, but it was, wor- it was worth asking. So I thought it could shorten our process. I, I really thought I could build an axle, and I still do, that, that may actually be better than theirs in some ways. But the control end and all the electronics and everything else—that as sharp as we are, we don't we don't have people here that can do that right now. It's just uh, you know that that's a that's a big investment. That's a big in, yeah. in manpower as well as time. That's it. That's a big project. But, Let uh, me. Uh, and, and these guys have been working on this this philosophy since college. Uh, the fellow in charge of it won a grant or won a big contest while he was with CMU. Uh, they got him some funding to get the whole ball rolling, and then uh, since then they brought on some really. Uh, Interesting. Hold that thought. Let me get to a break. I want to come back. I've got a couple more questions on that. Then we'll get to your calls and questions. Stick around. Kevin Rothenberg.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. The guys from Pittsburgh Power are here with me. We're talking about some new technology in axles. Uh, John, so I, I would assume, maybe I shouldn't assume because I didn't even know we were on the truck yet, but I would assume they're building just basically a trailer axle that we'd throw on the rear axle of a tractor. You've looked at this. How hard would it be for them even since, you know, they don't want to share the technology, which I get. How hard would it be for them to build a forward liftable axle? Is this, is this an axle that needs to have anything go through the axle, or is it all done at the wheel ends? No. It is, it is, uh, it's a powered axle. It's a powered truck axle, not a trailer axle. So they've taken a truck axle, and they've close-coupled a uh, rare-earth permanent magnet motor to it. That uh, The ones that they were testing here when they came here and tested their trailer deal were I believe 200 horsepower rated. And when we were at their shop, Ethan, what did they say they had one that was 400. Yeah, they're they? going to the 400 next. They had a 400 horsepower motor, uh, and being permanent magnet, they were able to close couple it. They, the RPM ranges. This motor technology is changing like daily. Uh, so in the time that they started, they had this wonky uh, belt drive thing on an axle that they'd come here and tested and worked, and they did proof of concept with that on the trailer and. So now they've got a deal where they close couple a uh, permanent magnet uh, electric motor right to the front of a rear end. So right where the yoke is, uh, they've built a plate that goes on there and a coupler inside of it that, that drives the pinion. So it's a regular axle. It's not liftable. Okay. Uh, it actually carries load back there, and it, it's got a. And so you get rid of so so the second axle. You know, on a on a six by two truck, the second axle. You know, when you buy one from the factory, it just doesn't have anything there. Right? It's a trailer axle there. Right. So they've got in that place. They've got their powered axle now, uh, and everything is self-contained. So they've got a battery pack that hangs off the side of the frame. They've got a control unit that sits on there, and they've got the, what they call their APU as well. So it's all it all just bolts on, and there's no interface with the truck's computer. They they had talked to us. They were here not so long ago talking to Ethan about 1939 protocols. They might be reading a little something about the uh, from the ECM, but I don't believe much at the time. At the moment, that was not their goal. They wanted to yeah. be able to be autonomous. Wow. So, you know, you mentioned fleets now getting crazy fuel economy, and there's a, a couple issues there. Most of the stuff on the market, outside of aerodynamics, that actually help fuel economy need some sort of driver intervention. You know, you, you, the, some of the things you guys do, tuning them, that kind of thing, fleets are never going to do that stuff. If this isn't, you know, off the shelf, ready to go, no driver intervention, the fleets just won't mess with it. They have too much driver turnover. You know, they they wouldn't even go to the the dead axles until they were fully automated. You know, so there's no driver intervention right. needed. This technology looks pretty intervention free. Doesn't look like the driver's going to have to do anything to this. Um, I think it's really smart that they moved to the tractor because one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, even though there's several things you can do to trailers to improve fuel economy, fleets don't do it nearly as often because a lot of fleets run a three-to-one ratio, three trailers to every tractor. So when you look at return on investment, it's only one-third because they have to equip all of their trailers and they don't use all of their trailers all of the time. So when they look at, you know, return on investment on putting something on a trailer, 
it's got to be big where they just don't want to mess with it just because of the sheer number. So this, though, may be a big enough return on the trailer, clearly on the tractor if it's a, you know, a fairly inexpensive conversion with a good payback. This kind of stuff could be a game changer. Oh, absolutely, Kevin. It's, it's, uh, it is definitely a game changer. Kevin? Yes. If you if you know a company or an individual that has several million or a few million that they want to play with, we know how to build this. We just need some backing, and you could be part of it. Yeah. Well, that sounds like fun. We can build our own version. Don't laugh. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm, don't I'm, laugh. We don't know who's this. We don't know who's listening to this show that might say, hey, I want to be involved with this. Yeah. Um, I'm laughing because I wish I, you know, had that opportunity right now. And I guess if I worked on it, I could. I know some people that have money. Um, and this is this is exciting technology. This is uh, this is pretty cool stuff. And, and you know, we've talked about uh, what what are they using for a battery pack, John? You know what kind of capacity it has? I'm not sure. I, I have no idea right now. Yeah, I saw the stuff that they were working with a year and a half ago, and I'm sure it's changed by now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know exactly what the battery pack is. It's uh, they've got it in a cube shape, which was interesting. I, I'd have, you know, I'd have, I'd have gone for the aero advantages of putting the uh, the Tesla skateboard battery underneath it. Exactly. Build some that... sort of slider to be able to slide the battery pack under the truck and keep the keep the center of gravity low, and and also you could do you know build yourself a flat floor that way too, which to, was for some more aero advantage. That's kind of what I was thinking Kevin, is, Kevin, is the, that Tesla battery is so Land impressive. Or, oh. Go ahead, Bruce. Go ahead. Do you think Landstar or Warner or any of those large companies would be interested in getting involved? You know, Landstar might be interesting only because they don't own any equipment. Zero. They don't own any trucks or trailers at all. They're, every one of their trucks going down the road is pulled by an independent contractor, and their trailer pool is actually just rental trailers. Um, you can either own your own trailer when you're over there, or you can just rent out of their pool, and they don't own any of that stuff. So they now they may own the trailer rental through a third party. I'm not really sure how all that works, but they don't have nearly the incentive to do that um as big as they are and as profitable as they are they don't have the incentive but if you looked at one of these carriers you know or you know that the trailer manufacturer that we work with on our signature trailer is uh, owned by xpo so they build all their own trailers they may be an interesting partner for something like this John and Ethan, how many million do you think we would need to to build it? Oh, I have no idea. I have, yeah, I'd say at least two. Two would be ideal. Good start. Yeah. Two million. Yeah, I'd say at least well, two. And again, so at this point, though, would have to look at any uh, any infractions we could be making. I'm sure they've got some protection on on the concept as well as uh, you know. I don't think it's something we could just freely do right now. Uh, you know, it's uh, would would have to see how what kind of patent protection those guys have before we did it. They may have wrapped up the hybrid second axle on the truck patent, and yeah, hmm. so that would be uh, you know that would have licensing uh, things to deal with and so forth at that point. 
definitely something to stay on top of. It's uh, interesting technology. I, I've seen claims of, and here's the other question I had for you, John. I, I know any time you put out a product like this, you want to put your best numbers forward. I get that. That's marketing. Of course, you're going to do that. What I'm wondering is, does this thing regenerate just go, when it's going downhill, acting almost like a, a, a brake? Or is it only regenerating when your brakes are on? No, no, it acts like a brake. It, it, help, it aids with the braking as well. So it'll actually, so the brakes on that second axle should be the motor. I'm not sure that they're completely the motor. They probably have to have some sort of a mechanical braking system on that axle too, but I, it shouldn't need it. Uh, yeah. That motor should be capable of just locking those rear wheels up when it wants to. Because here's, here's what I'm wondering about their numbers. It, you know, it, it, Bruce, you know this well. If you leave Pittsburgh and go to Denver, it's flat. I mean, if you're doing this in a truck, you could drive eight hours, never touch the brakes, and you're not going downhill very often. So there are lots of places in the country where I'm wondering how efficient this is going to be. Clearly, there are some places where it'd be great, but other places all through the middle and southern part of the country, I'm wondering, is there enough regeneration going on? Uh, that's why I imagine. We had yeah, I don't know if there was, uh, you know, I, I realize nothing's for free, but storage changes that whole equation. Right. So if they're doing True. some easy yeah. work or if it's on the flat and it does a trickle charge on the batteries and then saves it for when you get to the mountains, finally, I think you're still going to have you're still going to have some fair, fairly large benefit. True. So the whole, yeah. you, you know, nothing, nothing for free is true if you're going direct. But if you're storing that energy and using it whenever the diesel engine's at its least efficient, then I believe that the benefits are, are high, even if you do have to trickle charge the thing when you're heading across the plains or something. Yeah. So you're right. So something's always always really flat. But even the flat's not that flat, as, as Bruce has said before. You know, there are times if you're coasting along or if you're out of the throttle for, you know, a while or, you know, say you have a tailwind and the thing knows to do a little little trickle charge on the batteries without creating much, much drag, uh, and then you've got the storage. Yeah, and you're right, using the GPS technology would really help out a lot with that. So, interesting. We will stay on top of that. Um, We're going to get to a break. When we come back, we're going to get to your calls and questions. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan and John from Pittsburgh Power with me. Um, guys, that's certainly something I want to stay on top of and do a little more digging into. So uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about that a lot more. Anything you guys have or should we get to some calls? No, the turbo thing was about it for now. Unless Ethan's got something. Anything interesting, Ethan? No, just I was studying the turbos with you guys right. there yeah. and uh, it's amazing what goes wrong with them, and it doesn't take much. And yep. I mean, it's just a little groove that appears on them, too, and, <laughs> and that, that's it. Yep. All right, got it. Let's uh, let's head off to Missouri to get started on the calls. Richard, welcome to the program. Good evening, guys. Uh, one quick question on that axle. Is that going to be affordable for the in, uh, independent single-truck operator? I'm not sure what their pricing is on it right now. Um, you know, we'll find out. I'm, I'm going to talk to them, you know, as much as we'd like to do our own thing. I was probably going to talk to those guys about us maybe being an installer or something or or representing them to the owner-operator market, uh, something like that. But I'm going to uh, – we'll do some more research on that and uh, keep keep your eyes open and maybe give us a call in a couple of weeks. But I'm going to reach out to those guys and see if uh, if there is a place for us in there, you know, maybe maybe work with them. Okay. Uh, I got a 2003 T600 Kenworth. Uh, the Kenworth dealership calls it a 2002 calls it a uh, time that it was built. Got a, a 12.7 Detroit engine in it. <clears throat> I had a nine-speed. Uh, I think it was a. It wasn't a direct drive nine-speed. Uh, it wasn't changeable to a 13. So, but I had trouble with the transmission and changed it over to a took the transmission out and put a 13-speed in it. And one of the issues I was having with the transmission, uh, other than uh, supposedly I'm assuming the gears is going bad in it, but the, you could be uh, idling and the speed armor would just rock back in two. Like it would go up to 50 miles an hour, and if you're driving, it would peg out and then uh, zero out and come back up. So since I changed the transmission, that all stopped. Um, so I'm assuming it had something to do with the teeth on the where the uh, uh, speed sensor goes in. Um, a couple months ago, and this is this is about a little over over a year and a half, maybe two years ago when I done this. But a, about a month or so ago, I was driving down the road and um, I had my cruise set flat ground. Uh, the only hill that I had was overpasses or whatever, and. Uh, I had it set at 60 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden it just took off like you shot a bunch of uh, nitrogen into the back of the engine, and it took off and went wide open. Uh, so I let off the cruise, and uh, I reset it again, and uh, later on it done it again. So I just quit with it, didn't bother with it no more. A couple of days later, I tried it again, and then it done the opposite. Instead of speeding up, it slows down. So now my, my speedometer, it bounces back in two. Uh, to give an example, I was doing 63 miles an hour um, up a hill, and my speedometer showed, on my GPS was 63. My speedometer was showing 38 miles an hour. So I'm getting about a 30-something 30, 30 mile difference in my in my trip per day with uh, between my GPS and my odometer on my uh, speedometer gauge. It sounds like it's got a, a, a short to another wire or to the frame rail uh, somewhere in the wiring between the transmission and the ECM. I've seen this before, and that's what it's turned out to be the last couple times. 
Um, being that you change the transmission, it's going to be unlikely that the tone wheel is slipping. Right. That doesn't account, though, for it going slower. It does account for it going faster, faster but yeah. a short in the wire to another wire or ground can cause either of those uh, results. Uh, now, is that you're talking about the uh, cruise control only, or are you talking about both the cruise and the, the uh, speedometer going? Going back to because it, it does oh. it when I'm not I don't use my cruise no more because of that. So even yeah, even if I don't is, use my cruise, go ahead. Yeah, the cruise is reacting to the speedometer. That's why it's doing that because it's, it's oh seeing, okay. The ECM is seeing the same information that you're seeing, and when it goes fast, it cuts the fuel. When it falls low, it, it adds fuel because it thinks the vehicle's going slower. So it's only as smart as the data it's getting, and being it's seeing okay. bad data, it's only I'm reacting to it. Nice. So do I? So do I? Do I need to check the uh, the ECM? I mean, not the ECM, but the uh, speed sensor harness uh, all the way to where it grounds, or is this going most likely might be towards the ECM? It, it, it's what I normally do to fix the problem is if the speed sensor's been replaced already, because lots of people love replacing that multiple times. I run two new wires from the. Uh, speed sensor to the ECM, replacing pins, connectors, and all. Okay. All right. I, I think I think if you could get a load to Pittsburgh, it would be hoove you and save you a lot of time and trouble if you just brought it in and let Ethan fix it. Huh, imagine that. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be ten miles from y'all uh, in Muffin, and then I got to go to Leesburg, but then I got to be in. Uh, Buffalo on Thursday, so I, I'm not going to be able to stop by there. But I, I, I am going to try to get by there and get y'all to, to uh, do a check on this ECM and maybe do a reprogram on it. Uh, I, I would like to also do the turbo. Can, can I do the ECM without the turbo? Or um, if I do the turbo, it's going to be better to do both of them, right? Now, did you want to do the variable geometry turbo, or did you just want to yeah. do our 15 the no, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Be, that needs to be done in accordance with the ECM. Okay, but I can do the ECM without the turbo, right? Yes. Well. Okay. okay. Yeah, but, but you're as far as, far as what uh, turbo you have on it. Right, but as far as uh, doing the ECM first and maybe coming back later, I can do the turbo, and y'all just program it with it. Yes. Okay. Because I had a problem with my, my truck not wanting to crank. I tried putting ether in it just a little bit to try to get it cranking and run just as long enough till it burned the ether out. And come to find out, I, I took the ECM off. I was going to have it checked, but they couldn't check it with the ECM off of it. But they told me to check the two positive wires on the back of the ECM that plugs into it. And uh, he said that they should be, there's three grounds and two positives. And he said there should be power all the time on both the positives but there was only power on one of them so i followed that wire all the way to it went into the firewall and unplugged the connector and plugged it back up and checked the fuses and plugged the ecm back up and it, it i had power and then it fired right back up so i i want to say this we've had a tremendous amount of trucks in that have do-it-yourself rewiring jobs and they are nightmares yeah. So if you're not astute with wiring and changing those pins and everything else, um, 
Please be yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't mess with any of those. All I did was unplug the connector where it goes into the firewall and uh, plug it back into. I didn't. I didn't pull anything out of the ECM. No pins or. The uh, only thing I pulled off the ECM is I disconnected it when I pulled the ECM off, but I didn't mess with none of the pins or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's all I got for you. Then I'll I'll try to get another load going back up out of Pittsburgh uh, in a couple of weeks and see about getting this ECM worked through. You right. got it. Sounds like a plan. We are going to head off to Texas. We'll get started on this and carry it through the break. TJ, go ahead. It's your turn. Hey, Kevin. Uh, got a quick question about your scan gauge. Okay. Um. All right, I, I, I uh, did a dyno on my truck. It came back horrible, so I had uh, injectors, turbo, computer, wiring harness, rods and mains, and all that done uh, here within the last month. Now the scan gauge is nowhere near accurate, and I've been turning it down, and, you know, the fuel usage, I've been steadily turning it down, but uh, is, is there any other way to get it where, where it's accurate with my, uh, with my truck? Because it used to be within two gallons. Of a, on a fill-up. It was that, that close. And so I did all this work. Yeah, so... What, what engine do you have? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's a 2000 model Volvo with a D12 in it. Hmm. So... Yeah, there on the Catcomers in Detroit, I know they have uh, adjustments in the ECM. You can also adjust the fuel usage, which will help okay. dial that in. You, All right, well, I, I run it for a month after I put the injectors and turbo in it, and it was off by about 60 gallons of fill-up. Then I had a computer put on it, and it's been off about 30 gallons of fill-up, and then last week the wiring harness crapped, so I just got that fixed. But it's, it's still lost. I didn't know if there you know, other than the fuel usage adjustment on the scan gauge, if there was something else I needed to have done. You might want to go back through that original setup process when you set the the full and empty. You might want to redo that and see if that makes it a little more accurate. Let me get to a break. We'll come back. Haven't seen this happen before. We'll do that right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We're going to get right back to the calls. We are going to go back to Texas. So I'm trying to remember the, I believe the only calculation, the only reading 
that that function is really using is the data you enter as far as how many gallons you put in and then the fuel economy itself are you tracking real-time fuel economy like on our app or you know so do you know what your real fuel economy is for the truck Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I've been using uh, fuel gauges now for about three years. Okay, good. So how if, if you look at, like, if you were to let the scan gauge just keep tracking fuel mileage, say, for a couple days or a week, how close is that fuel economy to your real fuel economy that you're tracking in fuel gauges? It's been off upwards of a mile to the gallon. That, that's, you know, that's the thing. I, you know, I was getting discouraged after I spent twenty grand on this truck. And I'm still seeing, you know, mid to high sixes on my fuel mileage, which is where it was before I did all this work, except that it runs better. You know, but the scan gauge is showing a major improvement, but the real numbers are not. Well, the real numbers are the real numbers. That That's why we recommend using, yeah. you know, fuel gauges to track the real numbers. I'm not sure why it would have gotten that. Now, my thought was... Maybe the fuel economy had improved so much that the other numbers were off, but it doesn't sound like that's really the case. But it's reading better. That's what's causing the problem. Um, Ethan, any yeah. other ideas? I, I'm not sure what would cause that. Oh, you know what? i got to press the buttons and bring those guys back in. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that, guys. <laughs> I have I have one job here and I can't yeah. get it right today. Go yeah, ahead. I don't Ethan. know what we call it. Go off like that. Yeah, it's um, uh, no no ideas, huh? Not not other than just continuing to adjust it in the scan gauge till you get it right or it gets closer. You know, it's not unusual to see these these computers off a mile per gallon. We see that all the time. Um, and then that will throw off yeah. the, the number when you fuel up. And normally we can get them pretty close. But we always say that that number you're seeing on the scan gauge is, is it's never going to be completely accurate, but we use it as, you know, a teaching tool. It doesn't matter if it's accurate or not. If you change something and it improves, then we know your fuel economy got better. That's why we recommend both the scan gauge and fuel gauges, but I, I've, I don't ever remember anybody telling me one changed that drastically. Oh, yeah, it surprised me. It, it used to be real accurate with my uh, with fuel gauges. I mean, it would be within a tenth of a mile of a gallon on, you know, on fuel gauges. Well, this is... This is I fear maybe you'd have some ideas. No, I, I wish I did other than continue to adjust it, but uh, this just gives me one more reason to hate that engine. Not like I, not, not like I really needed one more reason, but uh, there it is. Let's go to uh, Florida. Brad, welcome to the program. Brad, are you with us? Uh, I can hear you in the background, Brad. Pay attention to your phone. Going once. <laughs> now, sounds like Brad's doing something else right now. We'll try uh, Tennessee. Donnell, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, 
Got a quick question. I have a, I just bought a uh, 2012 Schneider uh, glider, but it has the MK motor in it. And I always hear Bruce talk about building like a BK motor. What's the difference? John, you're the one that came up with that. It's the compression ratio, but I'll let John talk to you about it. Yeah, the biggest difference is the compression ratio and the programming, right? That programming is slightly different. So uh, the uh, MK has a lower compression ratio, probably for a lower uh, lower NOx emissions, and they work just fine if you're always in a very warm climate. But if you head up north here at all or go anywhere where it goes below 40 degrees, you're going to uh, have some white smoke and such whenever it starts. So we've come up with uh, – we built a hybrid. We found the part number for the cylinder kits that would – bump that compression up to 16.5, and we're able to leave everything else alone. Uh, maybe a reprogram, but not absolutely necessary. And it's interesting. Not all of them, they do it to varying degrees. Some of them are extremely bad, and other ones are just, you know, you just, you just see a little bit. Um, so it kind of varies engine to engine. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I was, just, I was just worried about that. I didn't know if this was, like, say, uh, like weaker parts, inferior parts, or... or you know, I do plan on putting the uh, your manifold and, and performance servo on here. And I was a little skeptical, um, but I, I do I do travel 48 states, so I do I am up in Minnesota, the Northeast, uh, Ohio, Indiana, and all of that stuff. So um, you should be expecting some white smoke during the cold cold month, huh? Right, yeah, they, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just going to do it. You know, there's nothing that, you know, there's nothing's gone wrong. There's nothing that we could do to fix that. It's just because it's lower compression. Okay. All right, that's that's all I had. That's all I wanted to know, and uh, thanks for the info, guys. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Minnesota. Gary, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Uh, should I have an oil analysis for me? Yeah, let's take a look. See what we've got going on here. Uh, I've had I've had I've had issues with 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 uh, injectors. I replaced all the injectors, and now I still end up with with the last injectors. When they took them out, there was some O rings that were rolled over and pinched. So that's just a little history. Okay, so I'm looking at the history, and it looks like we had a lot of fuel dilution back at the end of. February of this year, when did you replace the injectors? Right after that, right after that, uh, that, that reading where it was at, I think it was like 5.1 or... Yeah, 5.1. And then after the injectors, you had two good oil samples, May and June. It was both, you know, 2.9 and 3.2. That's no big deal. Um, now we're back up to 4.9 and the viscosity is dropping. So we do know this is true fuel dilution. Um, iron is starting to climb, so wear metals are starting to climb and viscosity is down. So this is truly fuel dilution. Um, unfortunately, John, Ethan, Bruce, unless you guys have some ideas, it sounds like we have injector problems again. Well, if the rowing were rolled once, let's make sure they're not rolled again. Um, well... Just like we I did here a couple else. times, we put the uh, smoke machine, we pressure tested them. Yeah, you can pressure test the fuel rail. Yeah, I mean, put in the same uh, pressure with air pressure as you do with the, the fuel pump wood, and it'll 
you'll see bubbles, or if we use a smoke tester, you'll see it come up around them. Okay. Hey, you guys never told me you were doing that. That sounds like pretty cool testing. <laughs> yeah, we came up with it on the one N14, and it found, what, three of them that yeah. one day in the back. Wow. Yeah, you could just like use that. air, too, and watch for the bubbles. But, yeah, we've done this for, for you know, heck, since I worked in the old shop when I was a teenager. Huh. Yeah, it would pressurize the fuel uh, fuel rail and see if we'd make sure you didn't have a uh, leaky O-ring. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Before, before, before we get off this subject, I want to add something about those O-rings. Injector O-rings are very critical. If you cut the bottom one or shave it, it usually gets shaved as it's going down into the injector hole. And it happens more in the winter time when the engine's cold because the injectors are in a warm room and then you're putting warm injectors in a cold engine and the hole has shrunk a couple thousand. So we recommend you put the plug the block heater in if you're going to do this in the winter time. And we used to use a mixture of STP, slightly thin with 15W40 oil to put on the O-rings. Now we use Lucas uh, oil stabilizer and just use it straight. Coat the injector tube very well and put plenty on the injector O-rings when you slide it down and set the injector in. And then with like a broomstick handle, a piece of broomstick handle, you want to pop it into place. You don't want to push it in slow. You want to pop it in there to let the O-ring seat. So if you cut the bottom O-ring or shave the bottom O-ring, you'll get white smoke because the fuel will just run, the fuel pressure will run right down past the injector cup in on top of the piston. If you cut the middle one, your fuel pressure travels back to the tank. And if you cut the top one, your fuel pressure now goes up into the rocker box and you have fuel dilution. Oil dilution, I'm sorry. All right. With that, I'm going to have to get to a break. We'll, uh... no, that might be the end of the show. Boy, that went fast. We'll have to do this again next time. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Power Hour. Thanks to the guys from Pittsburgh Power. We'll see you next time. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Kevin Rutherford. We're going to uh, jump into the second hour. Look, let me check the calls and questions. Looks like we have lots, so we're going to get right to it. Here we go. Your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. 
I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. Today is the Power Hour. We've got the guys here from Pittsburgh Power. We'll take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance. Engines, performance, fuel mileage, upgrades, modifications, troubleshooting, emissions, you name it. We'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask the question. And I've got Bruce and Ethan and John with me. And uh, anything you guys want to start with or mention, or should we get to some calls tonight? Oh, Kevin, I can tell you I'm getting about six phone calls a day with people with big cams, and the big cams are coming out of the woodwork. And uh, I enjoy talking to these people. I have people that do a lot of local running, and they're building older trucks with big cam engines. You know, Bruce, is is anybody saying, and I kind of get it in some operations, it makes a lot of sense still. Is anybody saying this is because of the ELD mandate and they want to be exempt? No, they're doing it because they don't care for electronics, and they like the simplicity of the big cam. Or if it doesn't start, you turn the thumb wheel. It puts the solenoid on manual. You hit the key, and away you go. Got it. That, my my second truck and, ever. And my again, my my first truck was a six V ninety two. That was always an adventure. My second was a big cam three fifty. It's a shame you didn't know me then. I, I and, and you know what? <laughs> you know what's really a shame, Bruce. I used to spend almost all week long between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. When I bought that truck, I, I had a uh, contract. I'd load in Cleveland, and I would do six or seven stops a day in Pittsburgh. It's what I did all week long, but I didn't know. Oh. It. I, unfortunately, the engine was great. Unfortunately, it was in a 1984 GMC Astro. That thing was like driving a goldfish yeah. bowl that had so much glass. <laughs> they were tough. They only had the one Ram that picked up the cab and if it wasn't on dead level sometimes the cab would cock you have to get a tow truck in with a boom to hold the cab and release the ram everything was wrong with that truck yeah and i I just want people to know that we stock more big cam parts than anybody in north america and between the top five of us that have been at the company for like 30 years we have 158 years experience working on big cams. Wow! And I'm not, and I'm not putting the, the couple of years that John was with me. So if we put John's time in there, it would be about 160 years experience. That's pretty impressive. Good stuff. So speaking of that, because I, I was, you know, I've been looking at the ELDs because that's coming here pretty quick, um, Ethan. Maybe you could weigh in on this. So they exempted the 99 and older engines from the ELDs. And I just assumed, I never did a lot of digging into it, I just assumed it was because the the ECMs weren't putting out the information they needed. But I got thinking about this. I'm not sure why there was ever an exemption. I, I don't know what information we need out of the ECM anyway. Now that I've looked at the ELD mandate... It almost seems to me like you could build an ELD unit, and if it had a GPS sensor in it, it, it we could put it on a mechanical engine. I, I don't know what information they need from the engine, because really all you need to know is the truck's moving. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't all know what they're looking for there, and I don't see why even older trucks couldn't do it. Um, you know, it's just like the uh, uh, the Qualcomm's even on some of the uh, older trucks that they're the fleets mandate that they have. Um, you know, we can put them back on 40 pin cats like the 5EK. Uh, the Select Plus should have all the information right. they need in it. I mean, vehicle speed, mileage driven. You know, as long as the the, the ECM is set up properly, there's no reason why it shouldn't. Uh, as long as it's you know for that truck and not off some other random one, so the speedometer's right and. Uh, as long as you have good information, there's no reason why it, even like an N14 wouldn't be yeah. able to use an ELD. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't really put much thought into it until we got closer and I started looking. And there doesn't seem to be any reason for the exemption to me. But they're exempting everything older than 99, although there are fleets that have units that are working on those. So some of these fleets these guys are leased to are saying, you know, the the FMCSA might you know, exempt you from this, but the fleets don't want to have to deal with two systems. They don't want to have to deal with paper logs from some of their owner operators because it's the fleet's responsibility when you're leased to them to audit the log books. So, you know, that, that was a pretty big thing for fleets. They have whole departments that have to audit log books before they get turned in and make sure they're all right. And that goes away under this. Because it's all automated. But the fleets don't want to deal with paper logs with some of their trucks and ELDs on others. So there are devices out there that are plugging in and working. I'm not even sure why the, the exemption was ever granted. Yeah, I've seen a, uh, some of them, and that's exactly what I've, I've run into. Uh, most of them have just been data link issues of why they didn't work. You know, the truck was old, and no one ever plugged into it, and it kept running, so yeah. there was no need to fix it if it's not broken <laughs> yeah, right. and, until they try to hook up a, a new device to it. Yeah. Uh, along huh. those lines, I don't know if, Kevin, I don't know if you read or follow uh, Henry Albert and a couple other drivers have the Team Run Smart Freightliner blog that yeah, they write for. I d- yeah, I do. There's some really cool writing on there, and Henry wrote an article some months ago about an old VDO logging device from the old mechanical days. So it's like this is nothing new. It, it was something that he'd used way back when. And it was a really cool article with a lot of a lot of insight to the whole the whole thing there. But uh, yeah, you're right. I don't know. Understand? You know, it's it's great. You know, for everybody who doesn't want to do it. You know, who everyone's kind of afraid of it. Yeah, they they can use that use that loophole. I can't see that loophole not closing eventually. But well, that that's that is what it is. And an ELD could easily be a, a self self-standing, GPS-based, uh, really simple device like that. It doesn't have to interface with the engine, that's for sure. Yeah, so, and that's kind of why I'm talking about this, because what, I'm, what I want people to be aware of is there are guys that are trading in their newer trucks and going back to 99 and older only because of the ELD mandate. And I'm now that I've looked at it closer, I'm saying you might want to make sure that you want that older truck because there's no reason this mandate couldn't be couldn't close that loophole pretty quickly. Oh, easily, yeah, that easily could. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it, it doesn't bother me, but I'm a tech junkie. You know, the, you know, if I were driving, I you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't catch me, you know, seeking out an old truck just so that you know some. So Big Brother wasn't watching or something that they're concerned about, but yeah, yeah it's just it's it's, uh, well, it's interesting. Well, if you, and I think they're still being used <laughs> in Europe. Have you ever seen a tachograph? That's the thing that I believe Henry wrote about. Probably, it was yeah, the tachograph. I think yeah. that was what was in his article. Yeah, Bruce, you were 
Didn't you work we, for a couple trucking those, companies we early? We those 48 years ago. When exactly. And I was with Motor Freight Express. We had taxi Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, they were common here I, in the U.S. I if, I, if I was driving, I wouldn't want the ELD because I sleep best in a two-part day. I like to sleep four hours, and, and I like to drive for a couple hours and sleep another three or four. So I'm, I'm with staying with the older stuff, so I didn't have to do that. That's because of the way I sleep. I want to say one last thing, and then I'll drop the subject on the big cams. Greg Hilton was a client of ours from up in Maine, and he ran five or six A-model KWs with big cam 400s with all of our parts. So they were putting out 500-plus horsepower. He had the best in the fleet pulling dumps, and they were home every night. He had the best fuel mileage with his trucks of the whole fleet and the best show-up for work. He said the beauty of the big cam was if we lost the piston, we'd limp the truck home, yank the head off, yank the pan off, push the cylinder kit out of it, drop another one in, and we were back to work the next morning, working all night long on it. So those were a couple pluses. Plus he had fuel mileage out of it. Yeah, well, there you go. When I had my 350 big cam, I didn't even know how to calculate fuel mileage, so it wasn't on my radar back then, but... Uh... <laughs> You know, it, it might be <laughs> might be fun to to play around with a mechanical engine again because there are so many other things we could do. Um, let's get to some phone calls. We got a bunch, and I want to knock out as many as we can. Let's go to Texas. Matt, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Bruce. Uh, I got a question for both of you. Um, I picked up a few months ago a 2013 Fitzgerald Glider. Um, it had a rebuild, complete rebuild, about 100,000 miles ago with all Detroit parts, including the uh, bigger turbo. Uh, my question for you, Kevin, is uh, it's been using, uh, they've been using dyno in it, dyno oil, and I was wondering if it's okay now to start using um, synthetic um, in it. That's the first question. Well, hold Hold the thought. Let me uh, let me get to the break so we're not rushing this. We'll come right back and we will tackle that and the rest of your questions right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Hi. Oh yeah. We're- I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. We were talking with Matt in Texas. Matt, go ahead with your questions. 
Yeah, well, it, the, the first question uh, was for you, uh, Kevin. Is it okay to start using th- synthetic now? I just had an oil change uh, done um, a few days ago, I, and I just went ahead and did the mix, had them use the mix, uh, because it was using dyno. They were using dyno in it, and it's about 100,000 miles ago, a full rebuild. And I'm wondering if I can kind of, after the next oil change, start uh, just using synthetic. If you if you have over 25,000, 25,000 is the mark that you want to have on a fresh rebuild before you go to synthetic. So, yeah, you're at 100,000. Go ahead. Put the synthetic okay, good in to it. go then. Okay, yeah, and there was a little fuel dilution. I had an oil sample done. Um, it has the OPS uh, system in it, and uh, it came back at three. It's not the same company you go through, Kevin, um, which I'm going to switch over. I wasn't too impressed, um, but I'll keep an eye on that. My, my question for Bruce, uh, it has a, I believe, a 2001 Detroit 60, 12.7. Um, I was wondering if um, what would be the maximum safe horsepower I can get out of it and if Dorothy would benefit uh, a pre-em engine and what my maximum turbo boost those are the that's it that's all the questions I have (laughs) okay Dorothy will not work on yours because you do not have EGR and second 600 600 horsepower out of the 12.7 is a very nice number they run very well at 600 horsepower we get good fuel mileage Okay. On uh, turbo boost, I think that's going to be about uh, 36 to 38 pounds of boost. Okay, mine's, mine's maxing out at 21. I thought there might be an issue there. Oh, um, you got a problem. you got an ECM yeah. problem and a sensor problem. You need to get that in. We have the fix for that. At 21 okay. pounds of okay. boost, if, if that's all the truck is actually producing is 21 pounds, you're at about uh, 380 horsepower. Yeah, it feels no, really well. It's supposed to be at 500, but it, it, it is. I'm creeping up hills even with. It doesn't matter if I have 5,000 or 45,000 in the box. So. Yeah, you're you're down in that high 300 horsepower range. Okay, okay, so I'll get it in there then. Okay. Not all a, right. Not that, that's that's all I have. Okay, that will rob you of fuel mileage, and that'll work your body to death. All right, we're going to head off to Ohio this time. Doug, welcome to the program. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm actually calling about two trucks, similar setups. One is a 2013 Cascadia that came from Schneider, and the other is a 2014 Cascadia that came from Werner. Both of them are equipped with DD-15 engines. How much horsepower, or rather, how much programming do those two companies do on the ECM that Pittsburgh Power can undo? I don't. I don't think they do anything that that uh, you know. It's whatever their spec was from Detroit. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, A lot of times so, they'll yeah, I don't, rate I, them, but I don't. I, I don't know. If I don't think they do that anymore, Bruce. I don't hear much. Uh, I don't hear much about that anymore. Do you, do you see anything from the fleets actually derating trucks again? Mm, not as much. I think they've even gotten on to, to not derating. Um, but uh, you know, so it's what it'll be, whatever the factor is. And if it's a pre DEF DD15, we can uh, put a tune on it for you. 
Uh, we're doing what about uh, 550 to the ground with that. Yeah, I'm looking for a, a volunteer there for the SCR one. Okay. Um, it wouldn't be a, a, an instantaneous thing. It's something that would take a couple of days. Right. So if someone had a spare couple of days, I am looking for a volunteer there uh, to fine tune our program. For a newer, I may have a volunteer for you. Okay. Yeah, if you could uh, come and st- spend a couple of days with us there, we could uh, definitely learn a lot and fine tune it with you there. And as a matter of fact, Bruce knows uh, the volunteer I may have in line for you. Uh, he had he had the yellow Columbia with the herd bumper on it. Okay, I'm not sure if but I remember he, it. Uh, yellow, he was the one with the uh, radiator issues. As soon as I get hmm. off the line, I will give him a call and tell him to call you guys because you need a volunteer. <laughs> okay. Please, we appreciate that. All right, will do. Let's head off to Colorado. Mike, welcome to the program. How you doing today? Good. What's on your mind? Ah, I got a question. And uh, Pittsburgh Power going to have a performance version of the variable turbo? <laughs> we, have, we haven't played <laughs> we haven't played that far yet that voice. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd stump you a little bit there yeah, Mike, Mike is one of our uh, Mike is the reason why we have two snowmobile conferences a year because he wasn't happy just getting together once he made so many friends snowmobiling that are owner operators he said we have to have two so that that's true, and we do. <laughs> anyway, you want to put an EG Turbo on the 14 liter? Well, I was just wondering for fuel mileage if it may be a thing for the future, and you know what I mean as far as performance-wise, if we can uh, generally. I mean, I never put the pedal down that far, but in the mind, it's kind of nice to have it. Uh, I'll, uh, let me say this. Uh, Mike has a 14 liter that we have very well tuned. He's in a fleet of 100 trucks. He has the most horsepower and the best fuel mileage of the 100-truck fleet. So anyway, uh, John, Ethan, you want to do a VG Turbo on a 14-liter? We looked into that. We'd probably have to adapt a whole set to it. Uh, We haven't haven't got that far yet. I don't know if there's something bigger available. Because uh, the 14-liter factory turbo works great on a 12.7, that's a little undersized on a 14-liter for our purposes. Yeah, especially with the higher horsepowers. Um, right, right. So it's not out of the okay. question. We've actually built a, we've actually built an adapter to bolt a, a bigger holster onto one. We have two of those adapters now, but we have not uh, done the programming or figured out a way to control it yet. So that's a whole whole another story. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's something we could work on if if you're interested. Yeah. So, but yeah, okay. our I mean, it was... on the twelve seven is really really working well. We take the fourteen liter. So you see what we're doing there. So we take the bigger fourteen liter turbo and move it down to a twelve seven, and then right. we program it to our liking. So that that works really cool. really well on the twelve seven. But the 14-liter, so, though, that's, uh, uh, we need to come up with a bigger one, yep. Okay, it's a little bit John, small to start with, then. You got it. Hey, yep. hey but, but we got to keep in mind, Mike's usually a high altitude. So he's a lot right. of times 5,000 feet and above. So that means the turbo should be one size smaller. So 
whenever he'd get down towards sea level, then it would be a little tight for him. But he's smart enough, right. and he's a performance guy, and he would know to keep his foot out of it and drive it by the boost gauge. <clears throat> yeah, so I don't know. So, I mean, it's something we could think about here in the future. It ain't something we do today, but you know what I mean? I'm just thinking for the future of uh, another step maybe to make things a little better. Yeah, you got to be looking good. forward, right? As good as That's yours right. is, we could make it better with the VG technology for sure. Yeah, there's definitely uh, that. That's definitely a possibility. We can fatten that tor- torque curve way up with the VG. Okay. Well, we might have to, like I said, I'll get with you guys off another time, and like I said, we might have to plan something out. And I'm sure you you need some time, and you know what I mean. Whether I need to come back a couple times or something, maybe we'd have to plan something out. Terrific. You got it, Mike. So. All right. Anyways, I'll let you guys guys go. And then also, too, Kevin, you I heard the one show you told me about how your motorhome pulls cabbage now at, and you got to slow down for the corners. Yes. Yeah, well, I kind of have that problem, too, with 79,000 pounds. i got to drop a gear and slow down for the corners. <laughs> that's a, that's, and, and that, that's at 30 pounds of boost. <laughs> that's a, that's a, so the, the truck puts a smile on my face every day. You guys have a great day. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, yeah, John, Ethan, awesome. Kevin. Right, Mike. We'll that, see you. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. You know, guys, most of the big, hard pulls in the country are fairly straight. That going up cabbage heading east, you've got some pretty serious curves in there. And it used to never bother me when I first got that coach because it was going so slow I didn't have to do anything. Uh, now I actually have to slow down for some of the corners. That's interesting. By the way, Mike was the guy that he's a, he's a Polaris guy, just like your Aaron. Yeah. And he went into the Polaris dealer when he went to buy his last one. I got. I think he got a new one last year, and he said, I want my new sled to run as good as my Western Star. (laughs) There you go. Good stuff. Hey, we've got to get to a break. We've got more coming right after this. Don't go away. This is the Power Hour. Guys from Pittsburgh Power here doing the heavy lifting. We'll do some more of it right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and Ethan and John are here with me, and we're going to get right back to your phone calls. 
We're going to head off this time to Indiana. Daryl, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I've got an electrical um, issue. Um, I might not be an issue. I switched from regular AGM batteries to Optima um, a while back. And after that, I wasn't showing as high a voltage running down the road. When I had that trouble before, I lost the alternator. So we replaced the alternator, and I still don't have the voltage coming up quite as high. So I was just curious if those Optima batteries just read a little lower than other ones, or if I got an issue, I need to look for. Um, what is the voltage? Well, um, right now I'm grinding 13.5 with, uh, and just bounced 13.6, but I used to get 13.8 before I switched, and then we did alternator, but um, anytime I turn the headlights on with the other Later, I drop like two tenths. Like I just turned the headlights on down to 13.4. Um, how old are the battery cables and in the the ends on them? How do they look? Because it could just be a connection issue or a bad cable. Being you already replaced the alternator there. The battery cable ends, most of them, then uh, have been replaced um, due to customizing it to get it all to fit in because right now I've got I've still got four batteries with a Maxwell start in it so I've got in the so they when they switched it all out the cables wouldn't quite match up with they were too flexible enough so they've replaced all those cables hey, from battery to battery hey Ethan what could could the type of battery just make a difference um let me uh, ask Daryl. Daryl, did you go from lead acid batteries to the uh, yellow tops? No, I went from the. Um, it was. Uh, I'm having a brain cramp for the. They were wasn't nothing wrong with. I went from an AGM battery, another brand, to Blue Top Optimus. Okay, so uh, Ethan, can that make a difference? These are real deep cycle batteries. Uh, it's, it's possible. The uh, the best thing you can do is though check it with a, a multimeter versus your gauge too to make sure it's what's really going on there. They, they checked when they had the before they replaced the alternator. The alternator was putting out fourteen point one at the alternator with the other alternator. And then um, yeah, that's whenever I yeah. So they thought maybe the amperage wasn't um, getting enough amperage out of the alternator. And whenever I was trying to um, do, like, conditioning on the batteries at home, I played around with the truck running and with throwing an extra, like, 40 amps in from a charger, it came back up to 13.8 where it was before. So we replaced the alternator thinking it wasn't putting out, you know, the amperage-wise, but I'm still still got the same kind of issue turn the headlights on i lose 0.2 off of whatever the you know it says running down the road did uh the alternator you put on uh does it have a smart sense wire did you replace it with one that didn't have it or vice versa i, I, I didn't i didn't do the the work on it. i know it's it's a um pre-egr um kevin's favorite one of his favorite motors a mercedes Oh, okay. 
Well, here's how the alternator, the smart sense works. There's a uh, small wire that goes directly to the regulator in the alternator. So that senses the battery voltage at the battery. It's not absolutely necessary that you have one of this type. But what happens is if they put a smart sense on it, it'll sense the actual battery voltage and not the lost voltage at the at the alternator. Because by the time mm-hmm. it goes through all the wires and everything gets the alternator, there's a lower voltage at the alternator. Mm-hmm. So it keeps from overcharging the battery. So a lot of the new alternators have what they call smart sense, and it senses the voltage at the battery uh, rather than at the alternator, which makes a difference, believe it or not. So so the and depending on where your gauge picks it up, it'll it'll show differently. So some of the modern alternators have this this smart sense technology. It, it seems to me like every vehicle I ever drove, uh, like on my older Kenworth and a pickup truck with a trailer with lights on it. Once when you put the lights on, and it's normal to see a slight drop. All right, I, I never noticed that before, except before when I had the other AGM batteries, I was running, you know, like. 137138 and as long as those batteries are above 125 when everything shut down they're fully charged i mean it's so that 134 138 13 yeah, 13 whatever five, it doesn't perfect yeah it's it doesn't really matter yeah ideally right. guys don't we want like 138 to 142 straight out of the alternator with nothing drawing from it right right yeah so yeah. that's the ideal that's yeah. that's the number yeah okay all right, let's head off to Pennsylvania. Brian, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Um, I just wanted to comment on the last show, that guy uh, with the D12 that did all but an in-frame, and now his fuel numbers are way off. Um, uh, John had got me some injectors for my C12, and just that alone has thrown the numbers way off. I had to do a big recalibration, so I don't I don't think that's anything abnormal. Um, and the injectors, I guess it makes sense. If the old ones, because the ECM thinks it's putting the same amount of fuel in um, for the most part, but if your injectors aren't flowing like they're supposed to and then you go put new ones in, that's going to throw off your fuel number. Yeah, absolutely. If it's a higher flow injector at the same pulse with the the ECM, is going to think it's putting more fuel in. So it doesn't has no way to know what the what the injector is flowing. So there is it, there is a fuel correction. You know, we're not well versed in Mercedes, so I don't know how we'd get in there and and and, and adjust that for the guy. But uh, that would be uh, you're absolutely correct there. So yours yours was off after you put the how's that thing running by the way? It's running much better, but it's. Good. Yeah, it's running much better, but it's still there's it's still a little bit off um, from what it had been. Um, but yeah, much better than it was. <laughs> okay, good. You, is this an EGR Mercedes? No, no, it was the on the last show the guy had I think it was a D12 yeah. Volvo. Right, but I but I mean on yours. 
Oh, no, no. Oh, no he has a 12-liter cat. He's got a cat 12-liter we got oh, instead of oh, a Delta oh, okay. Sport. Yep. All right. You know, the, uh, and thank, thanks for that, Brian. Um, the other thing, if you go to, if somebody's having trouble getting their scan gauge accurate on the fuel consumption, if you go to YouTube and just search for scan gauge KR, we did a video on this to, to go through and, and adjust that to get it more accurate. So you might want to follow that. That should help as well. Let's go to California. Al, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Let me uh, line things up, start off with a joke here. This guy comes out of the uh, lawyer's office from a divorce. Uh, the wife's lawyer really nailed him real bad. So he goes to the bar, he orders a shot, scuggles it, and then orders another shot. I mean, they make it a double, and, and he has a triple. And then the guy next to him he see, sees him, and he says, Oh, I had a bad day, huh? He says, Yeah, man. You know what? Lawyers are assholes. And the guy looks at him, hey, I resent that. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you a lawyer? No, I'm an asshole. Don't compare me to a lawyer. Yeah, so anyway, so well, we need well, some cheer well, there. That's <laughs> good. We can all <laughs> bet. We, we can Every all go home. We were, we were at that place there. I told you a few. A few. I told you I got a lot, bunch of them. Oh, yeah, you got some good ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That might be the best of the ones that you've told us, though. So far, I got I got more, so we'll, we'll down the road there. <laughs> Same so, one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, anyways, my everything's the truck's running great. Fantastic. Other than I'm using um, more DEF fluid. Okay, so I've got a 2014 Kenworth T680 ISX. So, uh, John, remember we put the uh, Dorothy, the uh, ECM tuned ECM cleaning. Okay, Al, hold, hold that thought right there. I've got to get to a break. We'll come back and tackle this right around the corner. Don't go away. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We're down to the final segment. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. We were talking with Al in California. Al, go ahead. Thank you. Anyways, um, I do have an oil sample, and I did call you on it a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
Kevin, you gave me a clean bill of health other than it had uh, a lot of uh, silica, which I had to replace my fleet air filter. It was, I was overdoing it, so that's, that's taken care of. But, well, anyways, that way you could go through it with them and see what they think. I dosed about 20 miles per gallon on the DEF. I was averaging 145, now about 125. The lowest I've gotten is about 110 for miles per gallon. Um, I'm always hopping and puffing up I-5, 80,000 pounds. But here's the thing. Prior to the tune, and remember, John, I, it, the original problem was engine D-rate uh, that was coming on over in Oregon. Yep. Um, yep. Prior to the, all that, all the, all the work and everything, I was averaging 145, even though it was gutless, and I had to I had both feet flat in the floor climbing up the hill there. <laughs> so hopefully those give you some clues and what your thoughts on that might the, be. Well, it, it's, it's directly related to the tuning. Um, the Dorothy, it'd probably even be even worse if we didn't have the Dorothy on there. So the what it does is it, we're making more horsepower now, and the engine knows that. And the computer is going to tell it to administer more def uh, to keep the NOx number down uh, below because we're creating more cylinder pressure, which means we could create more NOx. And the computer knows this, and yeah, it, go, it just goes hand-in-hand hand with making more power. So what we're going to have to do next time you're in, we could do some tweaks in that tuning. Uh, we should be able to keep your horsepower. We should be able to get your uh, your def usage down uh, through programming. So that's all got to do with that horsepower you're enjoying. Uh, that's what's costing you the extra def consumption. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. And I did slow down. My fuel max has improved now. It's, I'm I'm happy with the fuel max. So, and uh, like I was telling Kevin the last last time I talked to him, where the stocks. Uh, factory settings use the PSI on the boost on my scan gauge before everything. It used to go maximum 27. And when you guys did everything, I could go all the way up to 37 uh, on 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 uh, turbo boost. But I do keep it at 27. I try to keep it as much as possible to those those that amount. And so instead of you know I I can haul us up the hill, but I'm not. I'm taking it easy. I mean I can go up a, a sixth grade hill. 80,000 pounds at 40 miles an hour, but I'm taking it at 25, and it's nice because I'm not, I don't have my, my foot flat on the floor doing that. I'm barely touching the throttle, keeping it at 27 PSI, so I'm, I'm babying it, but okay, well, I'm going to be shooting to uh, Virginia, and I'll be there next week, so I'll see uh, if I can swing by there and have you guys take a look at it. Yeah, give it. Give us a call. Stop by, and we'll. Uh, yeah, we'll have to. Uh, I need to get another report off your ECM too for that uh, last deal we did here uh, with with your uh, company. So uh, yeah, stop by as soon as you can, and we'll uh, we'll see what we can do for it. All right. All right. We're heading off to New Jersey. John, welcome to the program. Yeah, Kevin. Uh, I spoke with you uh, last week about the uh, oil sample. And, uh, you know, my base being uh, low, and my question was, do I need to add Lucas to that or just leave it alone because it's just a miscalculation on the new oil? Yeah, it's the new oils. We are seeing this across the board. The base is just showing up really low, but it's not hurting anything, and I've done some research on this. I think they're just going to have to adjust their, their targets and their numbers, but just to... To clarify, if you were to put Lucas in this, it would make it worse. Lucas doesn't have any base in it, so when you add a gallon of Lucas, you're actually diluting the base that you have. 
So definitely we wouldn't okay. want to add any uh, any oil um, additives that would take away from the base. So right now, virtually every oil sample I look at with the new oil is showing very low on the base, but it's not hurting anything. Okay. That's what I needed to know. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Let's head off to... Colorado. Raphael, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Um, had two questions. Um, got a 99 uh, with a 2,000-year model. Have you guys heard if I need an ELD on that there, 99 engine? And then I, I did a tune on um, on my truck here. And um, when, I, when I pull uh, out 28 pounds of boost, that'll, that last pound or two, when I'm pulling a heavy grade, I'll get kind of a oh, – I, I had a – Bolt loose once on my on the port injectable manifold that we put on, and they get kind of an extra blow by noise. Do you think that could be happening again here? What engine is it? Uh, Twelve seven Detroit. And what are you noticing at twenty eight pounds of boost? Well, I'm up here in the Rockies, and when I when I'm pulling really heavy, when I get up twenty eight five, you know, up to thirty, I'll, I'll kind of back off of it because it's kind of like a real shrill, a real high engine noise you know in the cab i mean just kind of started happening the last week or two here you know i've had the tune maybe for a month or two how many pounds of total boost would make if you're flat out in the floor at 1800 rpm 30 pounds sounds like you could have a boost leak a gasket leaking or it could possibly be sometimes the turbos will just make a shrill noise uh, if you can get in our shop, I'd like to pull the compressor housing off and just check the turbo and do a pressure and smoke test to your uh, intake system. Okay. I, my, my, the turbo I got from you guys that um, started leaking oil, so Billings, Montana, we put in another turbo on uh, uh, you know, with stock, you know, so that's tough. Uh, you're hearing, you're hearing waste statements. What would you do with the turbo you got from us? If it's throwing oil, there's a reason why. Um, and was it oil off the compressor side or the turbine side? I don't, I don't know. It, it, man, I, I pulled into a scale and had a huge cloud of smoke. It, you know, I, I got 1.3 million miles on, but it was quite a quite an adventure. Yeah, if it's a, what you could have done was. I hope you kept that turbo because we can just put a new seal in it if it's the turbo. But it's usually okay. something in the truck that causes the turbo to lose oil. Yeah, it probably had six, seven hundred thousand miles on it, you know. Yeah. At six hundred thousand on the turbo? Yeah, the one I got, got from you guys. I put it on about half a million and I'm one point three now. Do you hmm. still have that turbo? I think so. Send it into us and let's put some bearings and seals in it and get it back on that truck. Okay. Okay. And I Sounds think, good. I think hey, any, the noise will go away. Okay. Any, any ideas on the 99-2000 with a... You know, they're, the, believe it or not, they haven't corrected the, the language in there yet. They're, they're, they, they really need to go by engine build date because that's what would matter. But I don't think they've finalized the wording on that yet, so I think you're going to have to wait and see if they clarify this or not. The way it reads right now, it, it 
leaves some things open and it's going to create a lot of confusion. So I'll keep an eye on that. And as soon as I know something, I'll report it. Let's try to squeeze in a quick oil sample. Carl in Kentucky. Let me, uh, let me take a look. Do you have any specific questions or am I just looking at this in general? Well, I'm just trying to pick, make sure that, yeah, just looking at it in general, it's a, it's a 99, uh, cat, 3406E. Uh, I don't know what they got on. They show down here that the, the last sample, which is on the 17th of October, that I added nine gallons of lube of oil, and that's not right. I don't know where they come up with that number. Yeah, I don't. But, uh, I don't know either. Should be only three. Should be three. Uh, and then the oil was changed between right after uh, the 15th sample, which would be. Like in September, the end of September, two thousand sixteen. Okay, so it's how many miles are on this oil right now? Because it's only showing about seventeen thousand. That's not correct, though, right? Uh, no, no, no. It's probably probably. Uh, 80,000. Okay. Hey, I was going to say, for 16,000, the iron would be high, but on 80,000, then that number is good, and there's nothing else wrong with this sample at all. This sample looks really good. Um, are you burning a lot of oil? Not not out of the normal. I put, <laughs> I put a gallon in when I changed the filter. Okay. And then I put uh, maybe... I put a gallon in, uh, probably at 15,000, and I put a gallon That's... in, maybe at 10,000. Now, and the reason I ask is because you're running 30 weight, the uh, 10W30 on a high mileage engine, but it's doing great. So um, there's nothing wrong with that oil consumption at all. The oil sample looks great. Uh, so nothing to worry about in this. That's going to do it for me. We've got to get out of here. We'll do it again next time. Thanks to the guys from Pittsburgh Power, Bruce and John and Ethan, doing all the heavy lifting around here. We'll do it again next time. Thanks for joining us. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rothbard. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio.